Well, Romans chapter 11, we're making our way through this, and uh, I want to read for us Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 7 this morning, Romans 11, verse 7 through 10. Paul writes here, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Now remember, we're in the midst of Romans 11 here and we're looking at basically the idea that God has left behind a remnant that God has preserved and will preserve Israel, at least a remnant of Israel. And um, when we've came into Romans chapter 11. Uh, remember what we were studying before that, um, I mean, be, be in beginning stages of Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, we looked at God's person, uh, who was the Apostle Paul, and he declared himself to be evidence that there's a remnant because he was Jewish and he was a believer. And so he said, look, God hasn't discounted me, so uh, if there's just one Jew that's uh, part of the household of faith, then God has not rejected Israel in full. And so we looked at God's person in verse 1. We looked at God's people in verse 2, that God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And that led us into God's plan, the foreknowledge of God, the election of, of his people, those who are elect before the foundation of the world. And sometimes we have a hard time understanding that. But we sang about that this morning. God's ways are not our ways. His ways are far above ours. And then the last thing we looked at in verses 2 to 4, we looked at God's uh, prophet. And then we went on to a little study of God's grace there in verse 6. Verse, and verse 5, it says, They were chosen by grace. And we talked about grace being God's, what, unmerited favor, right? Something we cannot earn. It's not deserved. It's his gracious favor. Um, it's unmerited favor. And then in verse 6 it says, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And then in verse 7, he says, What then? And that's Paul's way of basically saying, Okay, <laughs> let me give you a summary of what I just talked about. And that's what he's going to do. And so he asks that question, what then? And he says, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. And it's very important to understand that what Israel was seeking, this whole what then question, was something that was projected. It was prophesied by the prophets in the Old Testament. This isn't surprising to anyone who knew the Old Testament. The Old Testament, over and over and over again, it tells about Israel rejecting the God who chose them, basically, who saved them um, as a nation, selected them as a nation, excuse me. And so they rejected that. And even to this day, most Jewish people reject the Messiah, who is God's gift of grace for our salvation. And so 
this, this summary here about the remnant. Remember back in chapter 9, verse 31, it says that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? So what were they, what were they seeking? They were seeking God's what? Righteousness. They were seeking righteousness. What does righteousness mean? Righteousness basically means being what? Right with God. I mean, who wouldn't want to be right with God? Right? I mean, that, that's just kind of common sense. But here, they were blocked from achieving what they wanted. In verse 3 of chapter 10, it tells us that they had a zeal in verse 2 for God. These weren't lazy people spiritually. They were very diligent they were people who were really uh, working after. They had a zeal for what they believed in. You think of the Apostle Paul as an example. How zealous was he? Well, he was out there murdering Christians on behalf of his faith. You know, uh, you, you stop and think about that. That's a lot of zeal. I don't know if, if I would do something like that. I don't know if I'd be quite that zealous. But he says in verse 2, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. You know, there's a lot of people, even in the church today, who, and by in the church, I mean they come to a church. All right? They warm a pew. They sit in a seat in a church on Sundays. That's what I'm talking about. Whether they're actually in the church of Christ, whether they're actually born again or not, well, we don't know. Only God knows that. But there's a lot of people that are seeking after God. They're seeking to be right with God. They have a zeal for God. The problem is they're doing the same thing Israel did, not according to knowledge. They think that somehow coming and warming a seat, that they're earning brownie points with God. That somehow, you know, helping around the church, they're earning brownie points with God. Somehow feeding the homeless or going out and witnessing on the street or whatever. Somehow that's earning them brownie points with God. And what Paul is pointing out here is the Jews were no different. Everything they did looked to earn brownie points with God. They wanted to earn the righteousness that they needed to have a relationship with God. But they didn't do it according to knowledge. What does that mean? It means God gave them certain indicators. Hey, look, you know, you're saved by faith. It's not a works. The law wasn't given so that we could keep it. No man can keep the law. It was given, why? It was given to be a taskmaster. It was given to show us our sinfulness before a holy God. And see, once you align yourself with the law and you look at what the law requires, you walk away going, woe is me. I am undone. Man of unclean lips. There's no way I could ever measure up to the law. And then God comes along and says, hey, I got some good news. I know. And guess what? I provided a way out of your mess. I provided a way out of the sin that holds you bondage. I provided a way of forgiveness. And by the way, it's free. It's a gift. It's not something you can earn. And so they were ignorant of this knowledge. And then it says in verse 3 of chapter 10, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. Their own what? Their own righteousness. How many of us do that? We know what God tells us about ourselves. But what do we do? 
we say, well, you know, I'm not as bad as the guy across the street. I mean, he doesn't even go to church. I hear shouting from their house some nights. Boy, I, just, I don't know what's going on in there. Just, you know, they're having a big old brawl fight. Well, you don't hear that in our house. We're Christian folk. We don't do that kind of thing. At least we don't do it so people can hear us. See, they established their own, they sought to establish their own righteousness. See, that's why the Bible is so clear when, when Jesus came. He said, you know what? There's only one, one way. Jesus didn't say, I am one of many ways, did he? He said, no, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father, what? But through me. There's, there's only one way to heaven, beloved. And it's through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his sacrifice on Calvary. And see, it's only when you come to a point in your life of total undoneness, you just realize, wow, there's, there's no way, other way out of this mess. That you realize that, wow, you come to the cross and that God has provided this free gift of grace, of salvation, of forgiveness of sin, of free from the bondage of sin. And see, when you're undone and you have nowhere else to go, that's a very welcoming sight. That's a very welcoming offer. But if you're still stuck in the idea that somehow you're going to make yourself right... That somehow you're going to do it your own way, just like Israel tried. They, they sought to establish their own righteousness. In verse 3, it says, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Big mistake. Big mistake. Verse 4 says, therefore, Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. What was Israel seeking? It was seeking being right with God. It was seeking righteousness. That word seeking there, zeteo, and it has a little word in front of it, epi. And what that means, basically, in the original, is that they set themselves to seek. They, they sought with all their might. They just didn't casually seek. No, they were really, really seeking. If I told you this morning, you know what? I hid a bag of gold cougarons somewhere here in this room. And it's worth $10,000. And the first person that finds it gets to keep it. Ready? Go. I don't think you just go, well, let's see. It's not on the seat next to me. Well, it's not under my seat. I give up. No. What would you do? You would start looking. You would want to find that bag of gold. You You would probably spend all day if you had to. Why? Because you knew that the payoff was there. If you found it, it would be yours. That's really what this is, is saying here. Is in verse 11, when he says that they were seeking, or verse 7, excuse me, eleven seven, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. It means that they were seeking something with all their might. They were seeking to become right with God. And the present tense in the original language means that, you know what, they just didn't seek for a little while and give up. They continually sought. And they sought with vigor. They sought with energy. But look at what it says here very clearly. It says they failed to obtain it. They failed to obtain what they were seeking. Why? Why? Because they weren't seeking in the right manner. 
They weren't seeking the right righteousness. They were seeking a righteousness of their own. We don't have any righteousness. The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. So why would you be seeking after your own, to establish your own righteousness when God's word clearly says, you know what, there is none. There is no righteousness. You have no righteousness in and of yourself. You notice in verse 7 there, it doesn't say his people failed to obtain what they were seeking. What's it say? It says Israel. Israel failed to obtain. Remember, early on, it says that basically not all who say they are Israel are part of Israel, right? Remember that? See, the Jews had a hard time understanding this. So they thought somehow if you were circumcised, then you, you, know, you were born a Jew and, and that's it. Game over. Well, God doesn't play by those rules. He says, no, if you want to be considered my people, then you have to come by faith. You can't be born into it. Just like if you were born in a Christian home, that doesn't make you a what? A Christian. You're responsible for your own faith. You're responsible for your own relationship with God. Now, this isn't speaking here when it says Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. And then it says the elect obtained it. The elect or the chosen or the election, better translated, It has the idea of the process of election. That doctrine that we looked at several weeks or months ago. The idea that God in his wisdom chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's what Ephesians says. It's something that God did. He set his favor upon us. He chose to love us. Now you can sit there and say, well, why didn't he choose to love my neighbor? I don't know. I'm not God. And you know what? Neither are you. Sometimes you just need to leave those things to the Lord and say, okay, God, I'm just, thank you that you chose me. Thank God that I'm saved. Thank God that my sins are forgiven. Thank God that I'm trusting each and every day, looking to you to return. So this is the idea here. Who did the choosing? It's it's wonderful. The, The Greek language is so incredible because... This idea of election here, even in the original language, there's, there's different voices. And, and one of them is called the passive voice. In other words, it's something that does, it's an action, but it's not that thing doing the action. Someone else is putting an action upon it. So here, it's not saying, oh, the elect figured it out. Oh, the elect chose God. Oh, the elect did this. No, It's saying the process of election, the theology of election, has nothing to do with the person being chosen. It has everything to do with the person choosing. It's God who does this. It has nothing to do with the one obtaining salvation, but it has everything to do with the one who chose those who would obtain salvation. The Lord God did the choosing. What's involved in that? Well, it's nothing in and of ourself because there's nothing good in and of ourself. You can't say, well, God chose me because, 
you know, I'm good looking or I got a good voice or I can play the trumpet or whatever. No. That's, that's not why God chose you. God chose you because he wanted to. And I don't know about you, but that, that even makes it more special. Doesn't it? I mean, think about it. If, if, if you, you know, if I invited you over for dinner and you said, well, why did you invite us over for dinner? Well, because I know because you make that banana cream pie and I love that banana cream pie and you, you brought it. So, hey, this is why I invited you. You know, you'd go, wow, that's kind of rude. You mean you just invited me to have my banana? Yep, that's it. You know, but if I invited you over just because I want to spend time with you and, and get to know you better, that would mean something to you, right? And see, that's, that's how God works with us. The majority of Israel, the Israeli people, did not obtain what they were seeking. They were seeking righteousness. They were also seeking a lot of other things. They were seeking a kingdom on earth. Remember all the disciples and Jesus when he came and he had all those followers and they were going to Jerusalem and they thought, wow, this is it. This is when he's going to set himself up and this is going to take care of the Romans and everything's going to be fine. And all of a sudden he's hanging on a cross and he's dead and they're going, whoa, what happened? This isn't what we planned, Jesus. See, they sought a lot of things. And I think sometimes we have to be careful what we're seeking. In our daily lives. In our personal lives. In our ministries. You know, I had a pastor one day ask me, well, what are you doing at Grace to grow the church? And I said, well, what do you mean? Well, you know, how are the numbers doing? I thought, oh, here we go. You know, and and that's just where they were at. And I remembered what what John MacArthur said one time. And I said, you know, Jesus Christ said he would build his church. I wouldn't even do with it. (laughs) I just want to stay out of his way. And if that's 50 people, that's 50 people. If that's 500 people, that's 500 people. God knows exactly what he's doing. See, it's so freeing to be part of a ministry where we're not focused on those things. You know, I remember in youth ministry planning big events, sometimes even with two or three other churches. And we'd get to the night of the event and due to weather or just due to poor scheduling or whatever, you know, we planned for 150 kids and we had 15 show up. And some of the leaders are going, what do we do now? Do we just cancel it? It's like, well, wait a minute. We got 15 kids there that showed up. You can't just cancel it, right? It's not about the numbers. It's about following through. And so we'd go ahead and do the event. And you know what? It actually proved to be some of the better times that we shared with these kids that we were discipling. And so you notice in verse 7, it says, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, that righteousness. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. The elect obtained it. Why did they obtain it? Because they were elect. Not because they sought harder. That's what it means to be elect. It's, it's, a, it's a gracious act by God. It's not something that somehow, you know, you've, you've worked real hard at and, and you've gotten in the front line and so God chooses you. No, that's not it. As a matter of fact, God operates on a whole different economy. He says that he chooses what? The foolish of this world. Stop and think about that one. Next time you think you're feeling pretty good about yourself. You know, he chooses the foolish people of this world to confound the wise. And I just always say, yep, that's me. Here I am, you know. But notice here, it says the rest were hardened. And you stop and you think about that. And we talked about this 
takes up the issue of, of reprobation. We, we talked about this doctrine that's not talked about a whole lot. But remember that God perfectly is within his rights to do this. Look back at chapter 9. And I just want to just remind us a little bit about this doctrine. And so in verse 9, it says, For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, speaking of, of Sarah and Abraham, Sarah shall have a son, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. And it says, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Well, you stop and you look at that and you go, that doesn't seem right. And then Paul asked the question. We went through this. You can get the tape. We're not going to go through it now. But what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? That doesn't seem fair. By no means, Paul says. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And look at this. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God. Who has mercy. And then he points out this scripture in the Old Testament. For the scripture says to Pharaoh. For this very purpose I have raised you up. That I might show my power in you. That my name might become. That might be proclaimed in all the earth. So that when he has mercy. So that he then he has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. Verse 19. For will you say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? In other words, you know, you just need to sit down and be quiet. You're not dealing with another human being. You're dealing with God here. Just sit down and be quiet. I got things under control. Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? And he goes on there. But the important thing that I want you to see there is that, you know what? God is within his rights to harden whom he wants to harden. And don't buy into the lie that says, well, then I guess they're not responsible. Yes, they are. You know, one thing that's very important to understand, when you go back there and you look at that text in the Old Testament when he talks about hardening Pharaoh's heart, it's not that God just out of the blue decided to harden Pharaoh's heart. There was some issues going on in Pharaoh's heart that caused God to harden him. See, God's just not up there willy-nilly in heaven going, eh, I'm going to harden you, I'll save you, I'll harden you, I'll save (laughs) you. That's not how it works. 
See, God gives us all a certain amount of light, a certain amount of information. We're all breathing air. We're all living in a body. We're all going outside. We look at creation. We go, wow. We have an opportunity to either say, wow, somebody must have created this, and maybe I should take some time to get to know that individual, i.e. God. Or, you know what? Nah, I choose not to believe that. I just think we kind of washed up on shore out of a bunch of sludge. All right? I mean, believe what you want. But I'm just saying you're going to be responsible for what you believe. You're going to be held account. No one is going to be in hell one day saying, well, God, you didn't choose me. That's why I'm here. No. They're going to be there because of their own willful rejection of the offer of salvation that God gave them. And they're going to have to pay for eternity for that rejection because of their own sin. The Bible says that the result of sin is death, spiritual death. It's not, there's no gray area there. And the Bible says we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we're all in need of that salvation. We're all in need of a Savior. And so here is Israel seeking very intensely to be right with God, but they're seeking the wrong way. And yet here it says the elect obtained it. And remember, I just read who the elect are. Who, who makes up the elect? Both Jew and what? Gentile. So in the Jewish mind, they're going, wait a minute. Gentiles are getting saved? I mean, they're like dogs. That's what they thought. They had no respect for those outside of their Jewish faith at all. That's why Jesus got in so much trouble because he's always talking to the Gentiles. They're going, whoa, what are you doing? See, and, and see, this is it's very important, I guess, for us to understand because when you stop and think about it, here you have now the body of, of Christ, the, the people who are chosen in Christ, both Jew and Gentile. And so it says, Israel, who's this state of status that God has given us, given them all these blessings. That's why I entitled the message, Blessings That May Become Curses. Because that's exactly what we're going to find out in the end. Israel, even though they were entrusted with the oracles of God, they were given the word of God. They were given all the prophets. They were, they were given all this work in the Old Testament to show them, to bring them to the right kind of righteousness that they could have so they could have a relationship with God. And they rejected all that. They rejected all those blessings that God gave them. They misused them. But here you have the elect, both Jew and Gentile. They obtain righteousness. And the rest were hardened. Why were they hardened? Because of their unbelief. Disobedience and unbelief always works that way. You never see just God hardening somebody just for the sake of hardening them. In Pharaoh's situation, if you go back there and look at that, you see both God's hardening Pharaoh's heart and what? Pharaoh hardening his heart. God always has a purpose, has a reason for someone to be hardened. So here you have Israel. Not all were Israel, but it says here that they failed to obtain what they were looking for. The elect obtained it. The rest were hardened. And then he gives some Old Testament. He gives some Old Testament verses. 
in verse 8. He says, as it is written. You know, Paul always backed up what he was teaching with other scripture. And that's a good way not only to preach, but it's a good way to do Bible study. Don't just open up your Bible and say, wow, what's this verse say? Oh, that's cool. You know, put it in its context. And then if you come up with something and say, well, that must mean this. Well, then stop and say, well, is there anywhere else in the scripture, if I'm concluding that, that would argue that point, that would go against that point? Because sometimes if you do that, if you just take a verse out of context like that, you can get yourself in a world of problems. That's why we have all these cults around that that teach certain things of Christianity that aren't true. That's how they do that. They pull a verse out of context. And they say, well, this must mean that. When the balance of Scripture, when you put it beside the balance of Scripture, there's no way that it could mean that. Or it would be contradicting other Scripture. So you have to stop and you have to realize Kind of what's going on here. Look over at Luke 22. Because this is a good illustration. Of this whole concept of God. Hardening those who are disobedient. Alright. He, he doesn't just like I said. Um, harden people just for the fun of it. In. In. Uh, Luke 22, look at at verse 3. This is when they're having the the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. It tells us there in verse 1, the Passover. And it says, Then Satan entered into Judas, who was still there, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. So here you have this guy, who is one of the twelve disciples. And he's basically... Um, somebody who betrays Christ. He's there, but he's really not there. He's an infiltrator. And then it says in verse 4, it says, He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them, betray Christ to them. So you can see that he was not loyal. He was not a true believer. Verse 5, it says, And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. Now look at this in verse 7. Then it came the unleavened day of unleavened bread on the, which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Verse 8, so Jesus said to Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. Then they said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. I mean, think about that. That's just kind of a weird thing. you know. Yeah, just go to the city and see a guy with a jar of water. He's going to meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. It doesn't even say approach him. It just follow him. I mean, can you imagine? This guy's just out getting water. And all of a sudden, you know, here they come into his house. And tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room? Where, my, where, may, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And it says in verse 13, I love this because sometimes we miss these things. It says, and they went and found it just as they had told him. And they prepared the Passover. The idea that they just went... I mean, if you told me something like that, I'd be like, okay, now wait a minute. What do you want me to do? 
You want me to go down to the square station, find a guy with a bag of groceries, follow him to his house, and then go in the house and say, hey, so let me talk to the owner because you got a big room here and we're going to use it to have a meal. You want me to do what? I mean, I wouldn't just go and do it. I would question just like you would question. Their obedience here was so innocent. And the reason is, is because they've been with Christ. And they saw, hey, don't second guess this guy. <laughs> don't go there. Don't question him. You know, what he says is good as gold. So if this is what he says, this is what we're going to do. And then, you know what? Guess what? We found it just as he told him. <laughs> and it says in verse 14, And when the hour came, he reclined at the table with his apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until his fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And look in verse 17, he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For when, when I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, which he had given thanks, and he broke it and he gave it to them. This is my body, which is given for you. Do, you do this in remembrance of me. You'll be doing this next week at, at communion time. In verse 20, it says, and likewise, the cup after... They had eaten, saying, This is the cup that is poured out for you in the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him, look at this, who betrays me is with me on the table. So he's pointing it out. So everybody understands. For the Son of Man, look at what it says, goes as it has been determined. You mean Jesus wasn't arrested in the garden because Judas ratted him out? Well, yes and no. It was determined in all of eternity that this would happen to the Son of Man. But then look at what it says. It spells out the responsibility that Judas bears in the very next part of that verse. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. See, there's two sides to this. God set this up before the foundation of the world. This is how it was going to play out. And you say, well, poor Judas, didn't he have any choice in this matter? Sure he did. As a matter of fact, Jesus at the meal gave him time and time and time again. Even in the garden. Hey, you know, if you're going to do this. <laughs> I mean, you know, he gave him opportunity to repent. But you know what? He wouldn't. Now, because this was predetermined, does that mean that Judas is not responsible for his behavior? It doesn't mean that. It means that he's totally responsible for his behavior. Just like one day, if you refuse the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will be in hell one day. You cannot point your finger at God from hell and say, you didn't choose me, that's why I'm here. No, you're there because you rejected the free offer of salvation through Christ. And I know in our logic, those two things don't add up, but that's why God is God and we're not. And as soon as you try to bring those two truths together, the idea that we have a volition, that we God somehow works through our, 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 our choice of Him, we don't do that on our own. He draws us to Him. And yet, if we reject that, we're totally responsible for that. The doctrine of election and, and, and reprobation. They're both taught in Scripture. So he comes to this verse, verse 8, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see. 
Now this comes from Isaiah 29. The first part of this verse, Isaiah 29, 10. And then the second part of that verse where it talks about eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day, comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 4. So you can see them there if you look them up. So he takes a passage from Moses and he takes a passage from Isaiah. Guess what that is? The law and the what? The prophets. <laughs> see, Jesus had this all, I mean, you know, God had this all worked out. And Paul is just saying, you know what? Look, this isn't coming from me. This isn't a message from me. This is a message from God. And I'm going to prove it to you because I'm going to quote both the prophets and the law. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, here's what he said. See, the present day unbelief of Israel does not alter God's plan. It doesn't change it in the slightest. It's the plan of God right now for Israel to be in a state of unbelief. Why? So that they will see the Gentiles getting saved and eventually they'll grow jealous of that. At the same time, he planned to fulfill all these promises. He planned also for Israel's rejection as well. It's all folded into his plan. See, that's why we believe in a sovereign God. That's what we sang this morning. His plans for us are plans to prosper. Now, we may go through some bumps in the road. There may be days when we don't feel like we're prospering. But you know what? Even those days are within God's sovereign plan. And there's a purpose for them. And we need to learn to embrace them. So Paul says in Moses' day, God gave them ignorance. It says that he shut their eyes, he shut their ears. And in Isaiah's day, he did the exact same thing. There's a purpose behind that. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah is told to go tell his people and that their ears would be fat, they wouldn't hear, their eyes would be closed. See, so what Paul is pointing out to these folks is, you know, don't be surprised at this. This is something that was prophesied. There's still a remnant. Paul doesn't lose sight of that. He says, matter of fact, I am part of that remnant, so I know that that's true. And then in verse 10, he points out here, he says in, in, in verse 9 and 10, he says, and David says, so he quotes from another one, he quotes from the Psalms. In Psalm 69, to be exact, he says, And let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, and a retribution for them. And let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and bend their backs forever. In Psalm 69, if you go back there and take the time to look at that, it pronounces a curse on the enemies of God. All right, this is one of those imprecatory psalms that, that pronounces curses on the enemy of God. And so it really points that out. It's this psalm that Jesus quoted when he made a whip. Remember when he went to cleanse the temple? It's this psalm that he, he quoted from. It really speaks of the holiness of God and the unholiness of man. 
And so when you stop and you, you think of this, this, this very law that they were given, it really becomes a snare. In other words, it's like, whoa, gotcha. <laughs> you didn't think it was going to work out this way, did you? You know, it's like once in a while I'll watch, well, not once in a while, a lot of times I'll watch cops on Saturday night. Every Saturday night, actually, I'll just confess. I'm, I'm addicted to it, okay? I've got to watch that show. But anyway, <laughs> so I watch cops on Saturday night on, on TV. And it, it amazes me. You know, they set up these stings sometimes. And you see these guys come in. They're coming with their drugs to sell their drugs to the people. And, and you know, they sell their drugs. And they think, well, they got away. This is cool. And they get in their car. And all of a sudden, all these cop cars. Why? Because what they thought was a drug deal was not a drug deal. And sometimes they'll even ask the people buying the drugs, are you a cop? And guess what they say? Wow, no, what would make you think that? And the guys in the other room are all busted up, you know, yeah, wait. It's kind of funny, you know? I mean, it's sad in a lot of ways, but it's also kind of funny because they think that somehow they're going to get away with this. Um, and yet they're brought back to the, the reality of, wow, this is what happened. I had a, somebody tell me one time, you know what, if you're in a parking lot and you're doing a drug deal, and if there's any cars in the parking lot, beware. Because <laughs> you're probably going to get caught. And they were speaking from experience. They said, because you know what, that's just the way it works. You do this enough time, over and over and over, sooner or later, you're going to get caught. Because you're doing something wrong. You're doing something that the police are looking for 24-7. That's what they do for a living. You know, you may think you're just out there making a couple bucks, but you know what? There's probably somebody there watching, ready to slap those handcuffs on you. So just beware. So we see here that not only was this summary of the remnant there, but we see the scriptures that reveal this Israel's rejection. And when it comes to Psalm 69, it really... Uh, speaks of these different things. It says, first of all, that there was a, a, a snare or a trap. Um, it means something used by hunters to throw off their prey. If you've ever done any hunting or um, trapping, I've watched that on TV too sometimes. These guys up in Alaska, man, or, or Survivor or whatever. They do all these complicated things. and they, Why? They, they set up a trap. They set up a snare to catch an animal so they can have something to eat. Um, also says here that there was a stumbling block. All these terms are kind of similar. Um, they all mean a trap, something to trip you up. They're all kind of the same thing. And you say, well, why would you want that on? Why would you wish that on somebody? You know, in, in, in verse... At the end of verse 9, there it says a retribution for them. It's kind of payback, what it means. It means, you know what? When you do something long enough against someone as powerful as God, sooner or later, you're going to have to pay. Something's going to not add up in the end. And so what is God doing? He's paying back a disobedient, hard-hearted people. Remember in, I think it was in chapter 10 or 10, where God said, you know, I waited patiently. I reached out to them patiently over and over and over again. 
You know, I just didn't whack them the first time they got out of hand. I was patient with them. But they weren't willing to yield to God's righteousness. They were too busy figuring it out on their own. When he says they bend their backs forever, he's, he's talking about people who really refuse. They absolutely refuse to be obedient to God. The picture of this, this bowed back is a picture of pain, of grief. It pictures someone blind even, groping to find some kind of light. And see, that's why he says, you know what, this is, this, is, this is the way it is when you try to establish your own righteousness. Well, what are these blessings that may become curses for us as believers? I mean, for Israel, it was receiving the oracles of God. It was having all the prophets. It was having um, all the things that God revealed to them in the Old Testament. But I think for us... As, as believers, we have to be careful because sometimes we take things a little much too for granted. And let me th- share, we'll close with this, blessings that become curses. First of all, baptism. And you say, well, how is that could be a curse? Well, you know what? Baptism is what? It's an outward sign of an inward change, of a spiritual union with Christ. That's what baptism is. It's meant to strengthen our faith by making this inward reality of our salvation more kind of palatable for us. But you know what? There's a lot of Christians today that trust in baptism for salvation. There's a lot of people that say, well, you know, are you a Christian? They'll say, well, I was baptized. (laughs) I'll say, why are you a Christian? Well, like I said, I was baptized. What are they doing? They're equating baptism with salvation. And that's, you can't do that. The Bible doesn't do that. They're looking at their baptism as a blessing. But you know what? In the end, when they're standing before Christ, he's like, why God and why, you know, why should I let you into heaven? And they go, well, I was baptized. (laughs) And wrong answer. Baptism never has and never will save anyone. See, they've, they've really judged themselves to be saved persons without any true following after Christ. The very thing that should have been an instruction and a blessing and a, and a revelation to others that they are new in Christ is basically a false ground for hope. They're putting their, their faith, their trust in baptism, just like Israel put their faith and trust in what? Circumcision, right? And remember what Paul taught about that. Just because you're circumcised on the outward, it doesn't mean you're circumcised in your heart, and that's where it really counts. I think one of the other blessings that can become curses is communion. I mean, there's entire branches of Christianity that teach that somehow when you take communion, God is imparting grace to you. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's why we don't call communion a sacrament. As a New Testament church, we don't believe they're sacraments. What do sacraments do? They're, they're a means to earn God's grace. So you have the, the sacrament of marriage, sacrament of priesthood, sacrament of communion, sacrament of um, you know, all those things that the Catholic Church teaches. 
And so you just got to kind of go through the, the ropes. If you do everything in the right order, then eventually you'll end up in purgatory. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that sounds like a great deal to me. I mean, at least give me something for sure, you know. I don't want to be relying on Aunt Edna's donations to the church to secure my salvation, that's for sure. So, you know, when it comes to baptism, when it comes to communion, all right, there's a, there's a spiritual element there, but it's not, it's just a physical thing to them. They think somehow if they partake of communion, somehow that they're being saved as they do that. If you only trust in a sacrament, that actually becomes a curse. Because just like baptism, the answer is not going to be, why took communion in the end? He's basically going to open the trap door and say, next, you know, that's what's going to happen. Baptism, communion. How about material possessions? Think about this. I mean, the Bible says that our material possessions come from who? Come from God. They're blessings from God. Every good gift comes from the Father above. But you know what? I think sometimes when we possess possessions, material possessions in abundance, they can lead us away from God. They lead us to trust in our own hard work and our own ingenuity and our own ability to earn more material possessions. And it becomes a vicious circle. They should lead us to become more gratitude, have more gratitude toward the Lord. So even material possessions can become curses that were intended as blessings. And then even the Lord's Day, and this is kind of important for us to to realize that, you know what, it's not something that when we gather together here on Sunday that we should take for granted. You know, this, it shouldn't be a toss-up. Well, the 49ers are playing at 10 or Grace Bible Church, you know. I mean, that, it shouldn't even be a question for a true believer. I mean, where they need to be, where... And I'm not just saying this church, I'm saying any church, you know. Um, you know, this is called the Lord's Day for a reason. And sometimes when we have things on the Lord's Day, you know, we hear people's petitions against that, saying, well, you know, that's my day of rest, that's this, well... You better figure it out. I mean, I don't know what else to tell you. Because, you know what, this is, this is a time that the body of Christ should come together for the mutual edification of one another, for praying together, for building each other up, to have fellowship together. And whether it's in the morning, whether it's at night, whether it's whatever. I mean, there's some countries in the world that, I mean, their service starts... Sunday morning, and it doesn't end until the wee hours of Sunday night. And they have two or three meals. There's churches in India like that. Because the people travel so far, they just camp out there the whole day. And they have teacher after teacher, and they're just so hungry for the Word of God. And yet, man, you know, we come on a Sunday morning, and we're you know, two minutes later, you know, we've got to get to the food. What are you doing? All right? You know, I mean, just give the whole day to the Lord. Just say, you know what, it doesn't matter what time we get out. I get it, we got schedules and we try to honor that. But for the most part, that should not be the first thing in our mind. And unfortunately, so many times it is. And I think that it can become, or viewed as, even a curse rather than a blessing. So just be reminded of those things. And, um, you know, let me close this in a word of prayer and then we'll... um, 
go into our business meeting. Father, we thank you for um, your word. Thank you, Lord, that you've allowed us to have our eyes opened, to have our ears hear the word of God. Father, we look forward to um, that day when we will be in your presence, unhindered by sin and the flesh and the devil. Lord, that we'll be in glory. And Lord, we look forward to that time. And yet, Father, we're still here in this earth, in this place called uh, earth filled with sin. And Lord, we just pray that you would uh, lay it upon our hearts to never stop reaching out to those around us with the glorious gospel of Christ that once changed our heart, that it could still change another heart. Um, Lord, we don't need to convince them. We just need to share the truth of the gospel with them, that hopefully they will see it evidenced in our lives, in the lives around us. And Lord, as we go out into this lost and dying, sin-stained world, that we could uh, shed some light for Christ. And Lord, even if we just see one come to Christ, what a glorious thing that is. That's one more to spend all eternity with in glory. And so, Lord, we pray that we would not lose heart. Father, we pray for our country. We pray for the future of our own church even, Lord. And we pray that you would continue to lead and guide us. Help us to stay faithful to your word. Lord, help us not to long to um, after numbers or after other trivial things, but, Lord, that we would long to be in your presence and to worship you in spirit and truth. Father, we just thank you for our time here this morning. I pray if anyone here is yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, Lord, we, your word says that whosoever confesses the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And Father, that confession comes on the heels of understanding that there's only one way out of the mess in which we find ourselves, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on Calvary. Maybe you're here this morning and you've yet to put your faith, your trust in Christ for your salvation. I pray that you would cry out to God, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Show me the way of salvation. God will answer that prayer. He'll he'll give you light. Don't reject the light that he's already given you this morning. Embrace it. Ask him for wisdom. Ask him for understanding. Ask him for forgiveness. And he'll answer that prayer. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.